This episode of Access Utah was first aired in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Rock art holds power that words from the mouth don't carry. So writes Craig Childs in his new book, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau, uh, out from uh, Torrey House Press, coming out soon. Arranged in a recurring motif, handprints, horses, spirals, rain. This collection, part lyric essay, part field guide, includes insights from descendant knowledge keepers of the Southwest. And with the love of the arid, intricate landscapes where so many seek refuge, Childs sets these ancient and increasingly imperiled communications in context, inviting readers to look and listen deeply. Craig Childs has published more than a dozen critically acclaimed books, including Virga and Bone, uh, The Secret Knowledge of Water, and Atlas of a Lost World. He's a contributing editor at Adventure Journal Quarterly, and his work has appeared in the Atlantic New York Times and Los Angeles Times. He lives in southwest uh, Colorado. Craig Childs, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me here, Tom. Uh, so, uh, this, uh, this book, uh, well, I'll just read this. Uh, you say that uh, what you've written here is uh, based on a little more than a year of intensive study during lockdowns and reopening. And you say during those seasons you spent more time with pecked and painted images than with living people. So, the, interesting, the, the, the juxtaposition there. Yeah, it was, it was a good time to be out. Uh, I, I mean, I've spent my, my whole life around rock art but that year as i was i was just mostly writing on deadlines and and focused at home in in colorado and and uh set off to to do what i've been wanting to do for 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 decades which is just sit with a lot of these rock art panels spend hours, days, weeks, going back in, in different seasons to the same panel and seeing how light treated it differently. So uh, so this was happening while um, while pandemic and, and all other things of that nature were, were going on uh, in, in uh, 2020. And so I, I felt like this, this was the place to be, to be out in the canyons uh, because I had that, that opportunity. And, uh, and I took it, and it was an amazing... It was an amazing year in, in a lot of different ways. You write the book. Uh, there, there's an uh, interesting uh, scene where you're in the parking lot. I think this is in Utah. You're about to go out on a expedition with a few folks. It's mid-March 2020, and they tell you if you don't take off right now, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be quarantined. You better, you better take off right now. Yeah, that was the um, the last trip that I guided working uh, um, with Crow Canyon Archaeology Center out of Cortez, and, and uh, we were doing, um, I think, uh, a week-long backcountry archaeology course, and it was supposed to be with a, a Hopi archaeologist that I've worked with, and, and Hopi was shutting down at the time, so so he couldn't make it out of the Hopi mesas, and, and they just said, you know what, if you don't get in this van right now, uh, you're the trip is is canceled, and we all just piled into the van and and headed out into the backcountry and down into Bears Ears and and uh, and then for the next week didn't really hear what was going on out in the world and and you know, stayed focused on rock art and architecture, Pueblo, Diné, Ute material, and then and then came out and 
it was it was chaos, and we just we just told everybody, okay, get home, uh, get home safely. And you know, there were people from around the country who were there, so it was it was a fascinating time to to start off this book. Hmm. I think it's the same trip. You're you're in a cave, um, and you're you're looking at handprints. These are uh, thousands of years old, right? What? Uh, how many thousands do we think? Yeah, probably. 1500 to 2000 years old basket maker period and and uh at least 200 handprints painted in multiple colors where where the the palm of the hand was painted and then pressed against the rock leaving an impression and uh this this huge ear-shaped or clamshell-shaped alcove had had handprints all all around the back of it and and uh just incredible acoustics. A lot of these handprint caves have have similar acoustics, where even a whisper you can hear from from a hundred feet away. You, this struck me. You say uh, holding up your hand uh, to compare sizes is involuntary. Uh, I could imagine that. Yeah, you see, you see a, a handprint, and in a way, it's so different from other forms of rock art where you're. You're looking at a symbol, and the, the, the symbol, you, you don't necessarily know what it means, or uh, talking to, to direct descendants, you know, they have some idea what it means, how it fits into a cultural landscape, but a, but a handprint is, that is a, a person like you, with this same palm, same fingers, and, and you can't help but lift your hand up and not touch the rock because these are these are extremely fragile but just hold it up and compare your hand to theirs and think okay 2000 years ago there was a hand much like mine pressing against this rock leaving leaving this this sign of of an actual person somebody who had a name somebody who had a family rather than a symbol that that's a little bit harder to to understand what it means a handprint on its surface is is the sign of a person of, of an actual human being and so uh you know there's something about time here right time is compressed or, or maybe you're out of time here you're you're connecting on some level with with this person who left that handprint a thousand years ago yeah i and i think time it it, it changes its dynamic where it's like you're you're looking back thousands of years, but then it's not that long ago, really, uh, in, in civilization's terms. I mean, in our, in our daily lives, yeah, two thousand years is 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 old. But I think time starts losing the meaning that we have of our daily time or your your lifespan. It it almost the the boundaries of time come off, and you're seeing it in a in maybe an older or purer way, a way that isn't didn't have names for days of the weeks, and and you, know, you you didn't have an appointment at at nine in the morning. It, it was uh, it was more based on shadow and movement and and handprints that have been laid over centuries, so that you see generations upon generations. So I think it it, it almost gives a, a picture of time outside of, of what we're in right now, what we, we live kind of locked into. 
I was uh, watching a TEDx talk that you gave, a TEDx uh, Paonia. Um, at least this was uploaded 2016. Um, I want to play a, a portion of this. And you, your, your subject is time. You talk about time in this uh, very mm. interestingly in this TED Talk. So let's, let's just hear a, a little bit. This is uh, Craig Childs giving a, a TED Talk. Years of a clock. And our alarm goes off in the morning. We wake up, we go to work, we drop off the kids, we pick them back up. We, we get our daily dose of, of NPR or Fox News telling us what happened yesterday or what happened last night. And, and we start to forget what goes on beyond us, how much more time there is. We start to forget that this moment is not just right now, but it extends around us. I've had the fortune of traveling and doing research in landscapes that, that take my sense of time and just blow the doors off of it, where you go out into these, these open desert landscapes that, that just they remove your sense of, of your watch, your, your calendar. You, like The difference between Tuesday and, and Friday and Sunday is irrelevant out there. You walk across a place like this. This is the, the uh, Black Rock Desert in, in northwest Nevada. And, and you lose the sense of time that you have in these, these constraints we live in here. You go out there and, you, and you, you, you start to look at the landscape. You start to see terraces of ancient lake beds. And you realize that you're in a landscape that is much older than now. That if you were here 15,000 years ago, you'd be seeing the largest, one of the largest lakes in North America, seated there in what is now desert, where glaciers were melting and filling up these basins, where these dry, sear mountain ranges were once covered with wood. That's from a TED Talk, uh, Craig Charles, uh, TEDx, uh, Paonia. Uh, you go on to talk about, uh, this really struck my imagination, um, an exposed uh, print of a, what, a woolly mammoth? And and that you could you could see where yeah. where he went, and, and you explain that this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't a fossil, this is just a, a print that's been exposed, and, and in a couple of years it'll be gone. Yeah, that's down in White Sands in New Mexico, and and there are mammoth tracks that are about twenty thousand years old, where and they're actually saber tooth tracks, wolf tracks, uh, all kinds of. Ice Age animals, and they left impressions in the mud of, of a lake shore, and then sand blew in and covered them, but they're not fossils. They're not hardened into rock, so the, the wind has exposed the layers and reveals these impressions, which are basically just footprints, not fossil footprints, but actual footprints of a mammoth. And in that case, we found seven sequential tracks. So you could see the left-right, left-right movement of the mammoth and walk alongside it. And, you know, within, within sometimes months, these things blow away. And, and not too long ago, human footprints were found there dating back to, I believe, 23,000 years old. And, and they're, like I said, they're not, they're not fossil. They're not rock. They're just sediment that that will eventually wear away. Mm. In this talk, you uh, you say time is a jail we have built for ourselves, and then you say this: um, How far around you does right now extend? Uh, I'm wondering. You you go out to these places, and you 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 spend a lot of time out there, <clears throat> uh, more time than you know. For example, I do. 
do you do you bring back with you? In other words, when you come back to life, <laughs> uh, you know, the clocks and your your watch and and everything, do you bring back some of that stillness, some of that uh, perspective of time with you? Yeah, I, I bring it back, but I also sometimes is is like coming back into a train wreck where your where your mind is is on a completely different sense of chronology, and then and suddenly it's it's okay making making lunches for the kids and getting them out the door, and and uh, oh my god, how how do I hold all this together? You know, the in some ways it brings back a calmness. Of of saying okay this this all needs to happen and it it's fine it's it, it, it's not a uh, it's it's just the process of of living of making of of going ahead which is the process that people have been doing for thousands of years and and in a way it's kind of relieving to say okay I'm I'm just a a, a blink of time right now and. And sometimes that makes the daily routine easier. But then also coming back and and looking at the calendar, going, "Wow, there is a lot going on. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of dates and times and things that I have to meet." So it's it's a mixed a mixed blessing of seeing outside of your own time and then and then kind of being crushed by it, being being swallowed by by a calendar, which I think we we all experience that in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I think we all feel from time to time that, as you said, time is a jail. You know, we build for ourselves. We like to bust out of that. It's it can be hard to do. I guess getting out, getting out there, right, is one way to to accomplish that. Um, yeah. In this talk, uh, you you talk about uh, how I don't know who's building this uh, a clock designed to last for ten thousand years. And you and you you know yeah. you compare that to this ten thousand years ago this track, you know the woolly mammoth and then then now us, we're maybe trying to project ourselves out ten thousand years. Yeah, this is a, a clock uh, that I went to see part of its construction, and visited the warehouse where these enormous titanium pieces were. Uh, cogs and gears hanging from the ceiling and it's designed uh, the plan is to put it inside of a cave in West Texas and basically put up signs that will be readable to somebody in 10,000 years saying this is how this clock works uh, this is this is what it is and and it when I talked to some of the designers they said the purpose of this is to give us a bigger time frame to exist inside of so that we're not just thinking of clocks being hours or days, but thinking of them in terms of, of civilizations rising and falling. And I, I think that we can, we get trapped inside of the one sense of time that we have while there are these bigger and bigger layers outside of us. And, you know, a few books ago, I, I wrote about oh, uh, apocalypses in Earth's history going back four billion years, and and writing that book, I was I was looking out beyond these horizons of of civilizations and beyond the horizons of species, uh, 
out to a much bigger picture. And it's, I think it's kind of like exercising your eyes where you're, you're focused on a page in front of you and then you look up and you focus on the horizon 10 miles away and you're stretching the, the muscle of, of perception. I think we do the same thing with time. You, you're inside a, a studio or an office and then you walk outside and you open the door and you look up and you see clouds, you see distances, you're, you're, you're being stretched. And I think it's important to, to exercise in this way, to, to, to allow our perceptions to, to stretch a little farther and come back in tight. Do both. This, uh, I'll leave the, the talk after this, but uh, in this talk you say, you, you begin by talking about uh, you might be walking along and you see a crack in the pavement. Maybe the root of a tree is, uh, you know, is, is cracking the pavement and there might be any one of a number of reactions people could have, but uh, but you say, well, that's you know that that is I guess nature or, or the world that that is a disturbance of of time and it, not necessarily a negative thing. Right. It, it it's easy to see it as negative. Where I I see the crack and I go, okay, there's the fall of my civilization. The sidewalk comes apart. The buildings decay. The plants move in. The, this is this is a process that happens. Uh, neighborhoods are abandoned. Other ones build up. And you now I I remember working on an excavation years ago, uh, excavating ice age animals with uh, with paleontologists, and we were talking about layers of history. And a paleontologist I was with said, you know, in, in 65 million years, which is the distance between now and when the dinosaurs were around. He said, I don't think we're going to leave any fossil remnants. I think humans have been around for such a short time that that uh, we won't actually be identifiable in the fossil record. You may be able to tell that, that mammals had a big push on the planet and maybe even primates evolved, but humans might not even show up. And I know some people hear that and they go, God, how depressing. And I think, oh, what a relief. <laughs> um, that that means we're in this much bigger context, and it to me it feels freeing that that this isn't all there is. It, it feels lonely to say this is it. We we are number one, and I like to step back and go, no, this this isn't it. This is part of a much bigger tapestry. You, you right, I'll just read this paragraph in the in the book uh, Tracing Time, new new book from Craig Charles. Um, the first year of the pandemic, I was acutely aware of how easily a great eraser could take out all the civilization ha- has accomplished. I also saw how stories can last in detail for thousands of years. Countless images pecked into soaring cliffs, not as bright as they had been on day one, but still conveying their messages. Uh, I guess similar sentiment to one that you just expressed. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it sounds like I've got time on my mind a lot. <laughs> and it, I, I think it's hard not to when you when you look around when you look at the you know like Salt Lake City at the at the bottom of a of an ice age lake uh, the mountains that have been lifting up for for tens of millions of years around you and then eroding back down there I, I feel like your your eyes start to pick up motion around you and landscapes that seem static that seem still once you start looking at where boulders topple down where flash floods, carves, canyons, you start to see that everything is in motion, and, and really it's all about time. 
Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back uh, more with Craig Childs, his latest book out from uh, Torrey House Press, or coming out soon, is uh, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. And we'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, writer Craig Childs. Uh, he says, rock art holds power that words from the mouth don't carry. It's in his new book, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau, from Torrey House Press. Uh, so, uh, Craig Childs, I wonder if you could uh, read, read a, a passage from your book. Um, I wonder uh, maybe the uh, most of page 10, this is the end of the introduction, maybe starting yeah. with, with the first full paragraph and then to the to the end. Uh, this... Um, this, in this, you you talk to the reader and you you kind of give some advice on 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 how to experience uh, the the rock art that you that you love. Yeah, which is I think what this this book is about is is uh, ways of experiencing ways of seeing rock art. As some of it is about what images mean, but a lot of it is is uh, different ways of seeing it. And this is see this is from uh, the the San Juan River in southeast Utah in in the winter. You hear the river behind you ribbling, rippling over cobbles, ice cracks and shifts. The petroglyphs are silent, but you can hear them, and they sound like a long, deep breath. They sound like the pause before something's said. I'm writing this book for you, whomever you are standing with me at the foot of this cliff, watching light fill this mysterious figure and the companion on its shoulder. You've got drinking water in a, in a pack and a warm coat, gloves, and a hat for nightfall. It will get cold. A headlamp is in a pocket for when you leave. When the light changes swiftly at the end of the day, take a moment to watch. Let your eye go where it wishes. In this last sunlight, become as human as possible. The one you were before paved highways and the skies plastered with contrails. Feel the shape of boulders with red grit blown between them. Cold river air drifts through willow copses, sweet with the smell of fallen and rotting leaves. Follow the warmth, the last light, as it climbs the rock and pinches out overhead, turning all the petroglyphs gray. Stay until the last glow depletes and the night opens wide. The bow of the Milky Way stretches over the river, the sky frozen and moonlessly bright. Slushbergs hiss as they slide past each other on their way to the dark vaults of Lake Powell. Your eyes strain to make out the boldest representations on the cliff, but it's more what you feel than what you see. The images have presence. They were never merely markings on rock. They have life, wisdom, memory. This is them telling their story. That's Craig Charles reading from his book, a new book, uh, Tracing Time. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful. Uh, you you say your favorite time to view uh, rock art to encounter this is uh, late afternoon. Yeah, right. Before, well, I I like dawn, <laughs> sunrise. Uh, midday washes out a little bit, but then it depends on the panel. Uh, it's a tangle toward the light, but. Re- Really, especially south-facing panels uh, in the winter at four o'clock. That's that four o'clock in the afternoon. I think that's the best time when the sun 
gets low enough that it's passing through layers of, of atmosphere and, and dust in the atmosphere, so it gives it a, a bit of a prismatic, colorful quality, and the shadows start to pop out. At least in the... I, I had never thought about it until writing this book, until spending uh, so many consecutive days at individual panels that I realized that, oh, this is this is the magic hour. This is four o'clock on a, on a winter afternoon, you know, because you, you come in the summer and, and sometimes the, the walls are so bright that they're almost silver and the, the, the rock art might just blend in. But then it depends on if you're looking at pictographs, which are painted or petroglyphs, which are pecked. So it's, it's, they're all dynamic landscapes. And, and I, I like to, get to know a panel and figure out when the best time to sit and watch is. You've been going out to rock art for, for decades. In fact, you write the, you know, you countered uh, some of these things as a, as a kid, in fact. But you say it's taken decades till I felt like I had a place from which to speak. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, in a way, I've, I've avoided writing about rock art specifically because I... I look at it and I, I think what, you know, what we all think, hey, what is that? Uh, is, is that, is that an animal? Is that a person? Is it a, is it a clan symbol? Is it, there's so much there that, that just can't be known where in, in ways it's easier to write about the physical archeology span of, of pot sherds or, or cliff dwellings where you can say, okay, this is, this is a piece of pottery that was a bowl that would have been used for a specific purpose. Uh, this is a dwelling where people lived and had, had their hearth and cooked. And, and, but rock art is, oh, this is, this is an actual story being told. And I'm so far out of this cultural context that my own bloodlines and traditions aren't part of this, that, that I'm not sure what to say about it but after after enough time of, of um, talking to people from Zuni from Hopi uh, putting pieces together I felt like okay now now I, I can say a few things uh, enough to, to write this book you, uh, you talked to a lot of very interesting people including uh, you know descendants of uh, the, the people who who left this rock art. I wonder if you'd tell me about uh, one of the most fascinating characters to me was, uh, well, character, people, <laughs> uh, is uh, Jimmy Inote. Is that how you say it? Jim Inote, yeah. Jim Inote. He's, he's Zuni, right? And you, uh, you had, because of the pandemic, you had to talk through screens, but, uh, but he, he has a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, it was, it was a curious time to be doing this because you know, I'm used to being out with people on the land, and uh, and at that time Zuni was was shut down, and and my county in Colorado was shut down too. So you really, if you left, you'd have to be quarantined before coming back. And so, so Jim and I were were talking by phone and by by screen, and and uh, it was it was a weird juxtaposition of of me coming into the backcountry and. and you know, seeing these ancient images and then jumping on a computer and 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 talking about them and, and but his perspective is is that there are many different ways of of seeing these these images uh, different ways of knowing different he 
Jim is a scholar, scientist, farmer, uh, so he covers a lot of different bases. And and the one that I believe he comes from primarily is that he sees rock art and he sees his own identity in it. And I think that's that's different from how I see it. I I see my own identity as oh these are humans and I'm human, and yet yeah, thousands of years old, and it's from a, a different cultural tradition, but it's still humans. Whereas he looks at it and he says oh this is family, these are these are people that I am related to who left this image. These are stories that I grew up hearing. Uh, and so the, these are different ways of seeing rock art, and I really that's that's a perspective that I wanted to bring into this book is is say you know this isn't just tourists looking at rock art, this is also direct descendants. Um, you know, I was out with a with a Hopi uh, scholar and priest in in Arizona, and we were looking at at petroglyphs and he was he was saying oh these are very specific this is this is a certain clan symbol uh that's related to this other clan symbol over here you know you may look at it and see something exotic and ancient from some long lost culture and he said i'm looking at it seeing writing on the wall like you would see you would open a book and read it so indigenous perspectives are much much older and deeper and so I wanted to that's I think that's one reason that it took me so long to, to finally get to this book is is for for years, for decades, I didn't feel like I could touch on indigenous perspectives because it's it's delicate material. And now I felt like uh, I can I can convey somebody else's words here and relate them to what's what's on the rock. Jimmy Note, I uh, found this moving. He, he says, in the way that you would talk about life and death, these people are not completely gone. If you were to remember their face and say their name, they're there. That, that's how he sees them, I guess. Yeah, which is, it, it's very present that, that these are the, the memories of particular people. And I, I guess I see it that way myself, but I don't have that direct bloodline connection that, that Jim talks about. And so he has a different emotional reaction. When he sees some petroglyphs he saw as, as being rough um, and not perfectly formed, and, and his response to that was, oh, they, they make me sad because that was a hard time. They, they didn't have time to put their effort into art. They were, they were just left left scratches on the rock. And he, and he says he, he sees difficult times, you know, droughts, uh, maybe warfare, uh, periods of, of hardship. And then when he sees beautiful, clean petroglyphs where obviously people spent days, weeks, years working on a panel, he says that that brings him a lot of joy because he sees the, the wealth of that time, the, that corn was growing, that there was, there was good water. And, and so he has a, he has an emotional relationship with it that, that goes deeper than, than the relationship I have. There's a, uh, a, a scientist, uh, I can't remember her name now, uh, she, you, you recall going out with her, and uh, at each image that she encounters, she, she says, she greets it, you know, hello, whatever it might be. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, Carol Patterson down from, from uh, Bluff, Utah, and and it's, 
it's sweet going out with her because she she does have this relationship with with these images where she talks to them and, and very much in the way that, that Jim Anote talks to them, where she, where she says, "Oh, hi, there you are. I've been looking for you." And you know, somebody who has that kind of familiarity, where they're they're actually in a in a conversation with with the rock art. Now, what's being said back to her by the rock art, I don't know. Uh, we all have we're we're all hearing different things, but she's treating it as if she were encountering a person, which in essence she is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. They think about it that way. That This is a person, you know, you're removed by thousands of years, but it is a person. Um, so what do you do? Do you, do you greet the image? What do you, uh, what do you do when you encounter an image? Uh, it depends on the day and the mood. I, I mean, uh, often, I, I think I have a similar reaction as, as Carol and Jim, where I I come up and go, oh, hi, there you are. Good to see you. Uh, and But sometimes I feel a little embarrassed. Um, and, and this is something that, that Jim said to me as well. He, he really, his, his greeting changes. If he's with a group of, of scientists, especially Anglo scientists, he'll, he'll feel a little nervous about a, uh, self-conscious about talking with a rock art panel and, and he may just whisper. Um, and I feel that way too. It depends on, on who I'm with. Uh, if, if I'm alone, I'll, I'll have a little chat. Yeah. I'll, I'll come up and say, Oh, hi, there you are. Um, how's it going? I, but then at the same time, I, I, I look at these and I think, uh, sh- some of these, should I even be seeing these? These are from a culture so different from mine uh, and so much more rooted into this place in a way that you know, I only come from a handful of generations in the Southwest. And, and and do I have the right to see some of this stuff? And I've heard talking to, to some indigenous people about these panels that, that some of these are not meant to be seen by other clans, that they're very specific. And so I feel like I'm kind of barging in with a lot of ignorance just saying oh hi this is here for me to look at and maybe it's not um some images are are not just extremely personal but culturally private and you wouldn't necessarily know that but i've talked to people from different clans who say oh yeah we we see that and we know oh stay away from that that's not ours and and I come from a different perspective, a colonial perspective, where you know I go, oh, this is all mine. I get to look at it all, and and so it's sometimes it's in the back of my head. You know, be be quiet, be cautious. Uh, don't don't act like you know these things because you don't. Uh, and maybe nobody does, but maybe I know less than a lot of people who would come and see them. Mm. I was interested. You you talk about um, questions that you have. You know, any of us would have questions encountering these images, and and you talk about your your kind of your journey of questions, starting with what does this mean, which you, I guess would be my obvious first one, uh, which then proceeds to what does it express, and then on to who made it, and who was it made, uh, who was meant to see it, and then uh, where where do I stand uh, between those two? Uh, tell me about that progression. Yeah, I think 
we we automatically ask what does it mean and 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 for years I've I I tried to shy away from that question because I'd be out with with people looking at a rock art panel and would say oh that's you know that's that's obviously you know, whatever that's there there's always an explanation and and I'd think well maybe that that's possible but it could be so many other things there's uh, there's so little information here or it, it's hard to translate. And so I, I, I kind of, I step away from the question of what does it mean and, and go into what, what era are we talking about? Who is this? What, what cultural affiliation? And, and yeah, it eventually leads to, to me saying, okay, where do I fit into all of this? Which, which I think is what rock art brings up for us is, is perspective context. Uh, this this thing on the the wall, this image of of a ghost like person. Well, where where am I? Um, where will my what will my mark look like in a thousand years? Uh, where do I fit in as you know me in particular as somebody who's not indigenous to this landscape? Okay, how do I how do I sit with that? Because I'm not gonna turn away necessarily i still want to look at it i want to see where what it expresses on the wall and and so it, it gives me it's almost like triangulating your position where do i sit in history where do i sit as as a member of a culture uh how do i relate to a, a culture that's not mine on this rock because i have I, I one of the reasons I shied away from writing about rock art is I I didn't want to talk about having a relationship with it because I thought well you know this isn't mine this is somebody else's but still we have relationships with it we all do when you look at a piece of rock art it, it transports you what is your relationship and that's I think that's the question that I'm ultimately trying to get at in this book. Let's uh, take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Craig Childs. Uh, the latest book uh, out from uh, Torrey House Press is uh, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. And we're talking with uh, the author, Craig Childs. Uh, we'll have uh, more following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Craig Childs. His uh, book is, the latest one is Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau from uh, Torrey House Press. Uh, Craig Childs in his book uh, writes, Rock art holds power that words from the mouth don't carry. And uh, again, the book is uh, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado uh, Plateau. We have about... Uh, about seven minutes left in this conversation. Um, so, Craig Charles, is there a is there a brief passage you'd like to read? Sure. I I opened up to the uh, the chapter on birth. Uh, the the chapters are arranged by by motif: uh, birth, the hunt, um, galleries, symbols, processions, ducks on heads, and uh, and birth. I'll just read the opening of the birth chapter. This is one of the better sunrises. You can see forever. The land is a grand staircase. Cliffs step down to buttes and into canyons. Light falls into shadow. With so much iron rusting in the rock, the entire horizon is red. Towers in the distance, 
stand like water gods. From up here, the head of all the cliffs, it feels like you can see half of the Colorado Plateau. First sun lands on her pecked face as if waking her. The light climbs down her body. She is a petroglyph, and she looks over everything, the land open in front of her as if a sea has parted. Her hair is rendered in the twin whorls known historically among Hopi women. Her figure is as slender as a tuning fork, her age a thousand and a half years at least. Cleanly pecked legs are slightly apart to let through a golden-headed bundle where she is giving birth. As the sun moves down her legs, it illuminates the infant. Another rendition of her is on a boulder outside of Moab. She is a petroglyph with arms outstretched, hands turned into claws, and a mask for eyes. The wide girth of her body holds a melon-shaped object between her legs. The panel reeks of birth and pain. She is also in a meandering pale canyon in northern Arizona, coming off the tilted wooded backside of the Mugion Rim. There, she is a hair-bund woman of stocky geometry and butterfly lips for labia. Between her petroglyph legs is a suspended form that looks like a star, like a milkweed seed, a small person with a head, two arms, two legs. Beautiful. Now, that's... uh... Uh, Craig Childs reading from his uh, new book, Tracing Time. So, real people, right? Removed by thousands of years, but uh, but real people and continuation of life uh, depicted there, even though removed, again, by thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, and and you see these, these birth panels, and, and, and I think when I first saw birth panels, which was long, long ago, I thought, oh, this is, this is just representation of of something that happens, daily life, uh, the, the magic of, of human birth. But then you start putting motifs together and you realize, oh, wait, this is a story of a, a particular birth, um, which, which some of them, I believe, are, are related to, uh, to twin stories, hero twins that are, that are common in the, in the Southwest, especially on the Colorado Plateau. And, and so my, my, perception of what the rock art means has changed over time from being, oh, this is just a birthing panel about humans giving birth to, huh, this is, this is the birth of, that's probably a particular woman from, from a mythological history, and that child is a particular child, that this is, this is almost a, a nativity scene, a, a Native American birth scene that, that is probably part of a mythology and not just a represent, representation of birth. So you, you you start to the longer you look at these, the the more iterations of of what they mean go go through your head. Just have a couple of minutes left. I want to have you talk a bit about uh, Chip Thomas. This this really struck my imagination. Uh, you you have a scene in the book where you're out with him uh, viewing this, this you know this permanent quote unquote art rock art, but you, you recount that among many of his talents and titles, he's a muralist. And he, he creates murals that are meant to be impermanent and temporary. That struck me as a, uh, struck my imagination, that, that juxtaposition. Yeah, and Chip is a, he's a, a doctor down in Inscription House on the, on the Navajo Nation in Arizona. And, and he is, he's a fairly well-known artist, muralist, um, I imagine uh, uh, 
Salt Lake City has has a number of his his murals up, uh, and but he makes them uh, out of photographs he's taken that he's blown up and then applies them to a, a building. You, you see them as you drive uh, northern Arizona um, down around Tuba City and Kayenta. Uh, you, you see his his images, black and white images, up on on you know, old abandoned motels or gas stations, and he puts them up with wheat paste so that over time they come down, they they erode, and and he loves that that process of of making art that is impermanent, and yet we're going out together and looking at sites in Arizona. That are that are thousands of years old, and and you know, his last five years maybe, and and so we're looking at these really different time frames, where you know his his are cultural, his are part of a a bigger community, as are these handprints on the, on the walls, and and he and I went into an alcove in Arizona where it was all children's handprints and and I'm recounting the story which is based in Zuni of of uh of children's stories and how how this is a story that we're seeing that that's that's a 2000-year-old story that's still being told yet his artwork is only going to be told for for five years, which which maybe is the difference between their civilization and ours, that this modern time, um, it, things are more fleeting in a way. Uh, time changes fast for us. Uh, what's popular now is going to be lost in in a matter of years, whereas this older time, these these children's handprints on the wall are are there for thousands of years, still continuing to tell that same story. Well, we reached the uh, the end of uh, our time together here. Much more to be said, but uh, you'll you'll have to read the book. Uh, the book is Tracing Time: Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau from Tory House Press. The author Craig Childs has been with us. Uh, Craig Childs, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me along, Tom. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Utah communities regularly wish for more rainfall, especially during years of drought. But can they do more than just pray? This week, learn how scientists in the 1950s harnessed technology to make their own rain. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Today, Utahns experiencing drought due to climate change are encouraged to pray for rain. But these pleas are yet another chapter in Utah's long history of water anxiety. In the 1950s, scientists turned to the latest technology to help alleviate the threat of drought. Cloud seeding, or the process of making rain, wasn't the miracle cure many Utahns hoped for, but it does continue to offer a small increase in precipitation long after its mid-century heyday. In 1950, Utahns were desperate for rainfall after eight long months of drought. By the spring of 1951, 
A handful of counties in central and southern Utah enrolled in the largest cloud seeding program attempted in the country. Propane-powered generators were placed in participating communities, releasing microscopic silver iodide particles into cold clouds, causing raindrops to form. Frozen together around dust particles, the water droplets fell from the sky as snow. Scientists expected seeded clouds to yield up to 15% more precipitation, with the potential to increase runoff into Utah's rivers. But doubts about the efficacy of cloud seeding plagued the program. Skeptics were quick to note that the rain or snow from a large seeded cloud would hardly be enough to wet the sidewalk. In April 1951, residents of Sevier County and the surrounding region saw their first meaningful rainfall in months, 0.27 inches. Uncertain whether they could thank technology or divine intervention, the locals were nonetheless ecstatic for the scant amount of rain. By 1973, the Utah Division of Water Resources oversaw cloud seeding projects. The tax-funded program allowed Utah to grow one of the largest weather modification efforts in the West, with the state boasting over 130 cloud seeding generators. Utah's cloud seeding generators are not focused on increasing snow in ski sports, but are situated to maximize runoff, bolstering agricultural and municipal water supplies. Today, roughly 7% of Utah snowflakes form around silver iodide particles shot from these generators. As climate change and extreme drought continue to threaten life in the West, weather modification may be just another way that humans try to alter the landscape to support our survival. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.